Beloved in the Lord, what does it mean to be a pure church? We don't like to think in terms of purity and impurity today. It makes us feel uncultured, even uncivilized among our worldly peers. Yet part of the righteousness of God is that we keep our bodies pure. However, that concept may have been misused, misunderstood, even used for abuse in the past, the fact remains that God calls us to purity, not only in our own bodies, but as a church, as a church body. Paul uses the image of removing leaven for removing impurities. Leaven is a, a mixture of, of dough and yeast that, in a sense, grow, and you add it to your bread to make it puffy, what the same thing that yeast does. And Paul says that old leaven is corrupt, and like you do with the Passover, you remove that all from your house. You remove that all from your heart. Those who practice impurity or sexual immorality, and here I mean willful sexual immorality, not the daily struggle with all sorts of impure thoughts, those who recognize the impurity of their thoughts, even if they're occasionally overcome by them, however impure they are and struggle with them, ought to receive mercy and encouragement in the church of Christ. Their sins are covered by the Passover lamb. Through repentance and faith, they are removed. But those who willfully practice sexual immorality are an evil, leavening influence in the church of God. While we will always have sinfulness in our midst, we may not turn a blind eye to willful evil, especially those overt sins that would have received the death penalty in the Old Testament. You see, Old Testament execution correlates to New Testament excommunication. High-handed sin in the Old Testament, and by that I mean willful sin in the face of God, demands cleansing of the land. In the New Testament, we're no longer connected to the land in the same way. But we are the body loaf of Jesus Christ, and the old leaven must be cleansed out from among us. High-handed sin against God must quickly be dealt with so that the church may be pure, so that God may not remove her lampstand, as he warns in the book of Revelation. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God preserves the integrity of his church through the removal of the old leaven. First, we'll see the arrogance of the Corinthians. Second, we'll see a necessary excommunication. And third, purge the evil person from your midst. At the end of chapter 4, Paul turns from his comparison between himself and the Corinthians, from his extended speech about the nature of wisdom and strength as discerned by the cross, discerned by the cross to a stern warning for the Corinthians. Verse 18, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. 
The Corinthians, for some reason, compare themselves well to Paul. They think that they are better than Paul. They're likely guilty of sophistry, given the coming verses. And that means they know how to speak in a way that makes it look like they are always the good guys. What is sophistry? It's the art of arguing in order to win, not in order to teach or grow in the truth. At its heart is manipulation for the sake of power. Incidentally, if you spend enough time with young adults, you'll know what this looks like. And thankfully, many of us grow out of this, but it's always a temptation for those of us who know how to turn a phrase. But, says Paul in verse 19, I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. The power he's talking about here is the power of the gospel. Does this talk of the Corinthians reflect the truth of the gospel? Does it reflect the teachings of the Scripture? Or is it just empty words as so much sophistry is? Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. While the kingdom of God is advanced through the word, it's not, that word is not the empty babbling of the nations, but it's grounded in the power of the Spirit of God. Whenever the gospel is preached, it's not the presence or voice of the minister that matters, but, the power, but that the power of the Holy Spirit is present in the congregation. When you enter into the sanctuary of a congregation, don't ask whether the minister speaks with power. Ask whether the Holy Spirit is in this church. Paul warns, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And then Paul draws out one of the primary offenses which the arrogance of the Corinthians has allowed. Their arrogance has allowed for something that is completely shocking to Paul. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. While they criticize Paul and devolve into factionalism, while they sit accusing one another over little things, relying in pride on their status and their knowledge, they have overlooked an abomination in their midst. This is the man's stepmother. This is not his biological mother, and in fact, it's quite possible being a second wife that she is not much older than he is or even younger. The problem is, as Leviticus 18 puts it, he is uncovering his father's nakedness. If you remember uh, from Genesis, this is what Simeon does to his father Jacob, sleeping with one of his father's concubines. Paul notes that even the Gentile world is repulsed by this type of sexual immorality, not tolerating it among themselves. 
it's likely that the Corinthians overlooked this because of the status of this man in their community. We might even imagine that he is rich, maybe well-connected in the church, and so they overlook his indiscretions. And you are arrogant, says Paul. The Corinthians flatter themselves about their greatness while they have sin in their midst. They look at the speck in Paul's eye while refusing to recognize the log in their own. Ought you not rather to mourn? While they have talked, they have let a great evil come into the church. Notice that the rise of these sorts of sins in the church are not cause for arrogant scolding of the sinner, but for mourning. These sorts of sins in the congregation are signs of other things that have gone wrong. The other cause for mourning is the necessary removal of the sinner. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. God, in His teaching on sexuality, wanted to make sure that certain things were completely taboo among the people of God, particularly the many forms of incest, sodomy, and bestiality were to have no place among God's people. That's why Paul is so harsh in this moment. These sorts of sins take time to develop in a people, and when recognized in practice, they must be dealt with quickly. The thing is, the church is a place where people are freed from sexual immorality. If we allow it to flourish, we will no longer be able to carry out the task of the gospel. That brings us to our second point, a necessary excommunication. Paul doesn't need to be there to pronounce judgment. If such a sinner is in their midst, he must be dealt with immediately. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The Scriptures are clear on this point for Paul. If the man did it and it is known, the man must be dealt with. Paul describes the process of excommunication. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's understanding of what the excommunication should look like is drawn from the teaching of Scripture about the execution of a sinner in Israel. In Israel, the sinner had to be removed from the land. In Corinth, the sinner had to be removed from the church, from the group of the baptized. The sinner does not need to be executed because the land is not affected, as the church is not attached to a particular piece of land, but the church is attached to where Christ is at the right hand of God. Yet the congregation must remain pure, and that is why the sinner must be removed. So when the assembly is gathered, knowing that Paul's authority undergirds what they are doing, they are to hand that man over to Satan. The whole assembly is there. Just as in the Old Testament, the whole assembly would participate in a stoning, 
right? You ever wonder why the execution was stoning in the Old Testament? That is so that the whole congregation would participate. In the same way, the whole assembly, the whole congregation participates in the excommunication. We all need to recognize that a man or woman are no longer part of the church of Christ. This goes to show that the keys of the kingdom belong to the whole church, while the leaders of the church use these keys for the sake of the church. That's why we still announce excommunications to the whole congregation, so that the whole congregation may be witnesses to that, and even that they may have an opportunity to object to the excommunication. This man is then handed over to Satan. Now, this is not some unique status of those who are excommunicated. Rather, the church is recognizing that this man does not show a life that is transformed by Christ, so he must be sent back to his true master, Satan. And what is the purpose of this excommunication? It's twofold. The first is for the sinner, for the destruction of the flesh, says Paul so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The flesh here is not talking about the man's flesh and blood, but about his sinful nature. They excommunicate the man in the hopes that he might crucify his own flesh, and in turn his spirit may be saved. Excommunication is not a declaration about the ultimate election of the one excommunicated. God rather uses it to jolt the man out of his complacency. The other purpose here is the purity of the church. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The self-complacency of the Corinthians in protecting this man from discipline allows his sin to affect the rest of the congregation. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Paul's instructions go back to the institution of the Passover where Israel was called to clear out all the leaven from her houses. This was a picture of getting rid of the influence of Egypt, the land of slavery. End of verse 7, as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Corinth is to remove leaven because she is unleavened. She is unleavened because Christ has died. And in dying, Christ removed the leaven of this world from the hearts of believers. So the Corinthians ought to be careful in living out, living out what they already are. God's already removed the leaven. Now live out what God has made you in Christ. And this really is the hope for all of you who struggle with various lusts in your life, even perhaps especially if you struggle with increasingly perverse lusts. Christ died for that. On the cross, you can remove the leaven of this perverse world through repentance, through the destruction of the flesh, the crucifying of the old man, you can prepare your heart 
before the feast. And that is the purpose of clearing out the old leaven. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Corinth needed to clear out the old leaven in her congregation, a man who had his father's wife. She also had to recognize her own arrogance in overlooking that wickedness. She also had to recognize how the old leaven of malice and evil had infected her. So that later in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells her she's not actually celebrating the feast of the Lord's Supper at all. Instead, says Paul, celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Come like Paul, sincere in your efforts to live according to the gospel, as much as is possible, being right with all people, but at the same time allowing God to be the judge. Come, speaking the truth, loving the truth, as found in Jesus Christ. Paul has one more clarification to make before he closes on this subject. These words are particularly for the church of God, not for the world in general. That brings us to our last point. Purge the evil person from your midst. Your midst is the key phrase here. I wrote you in my letter not to associate, and the word associate here means to have close relationships with, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. It's part of our mission to call all people to freedom from these sins. Therefore, we ought to associate with them. We ought to associate with them. We ought to, within what is possible for a Christian, participate in all facets of society. We can take full part in the community that we live in. We don't condemn them. God will make the final judgment. As much as is possible, we offer them freedom from sexual immorality. In fact, this man, this man who was in the church, now that he is his outsider, it gives it a greater possibility for the church to associate with him. Paul adds, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. These sins mentioned here are open and continual sins. The eating likely refers to the Lord's Supper and other community meals. Basically, the church and individuals in the church are to demonstrate ways in which those who carry on in this sort of life might officially bear the name of brother, but are not truly brothers. Paul explains, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? The judgment Paul is speaking of here is official judgment. Of course, Paul judges in the sense of recognizing that those sort of attitudes go against God's law. But Paul has no jurisdiction 
over outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The members of the church have put themselves under the jurisdiction of Christ, and we judge one another by that metric. God judges those outside. Now you purge the evil person from among you. That line, purge the evil person from among you, is straight from the Old Testament law. This suggests that in general, the types of people that were executed among the people of Israel are the types of people that ought to be excommunicated among the people of God, provided that they do not repent and cannot be restored to Christ and the people of God. Notice again the language of clean and unclean, though that word purge is closely related if we are to understand how that language applies to the church of God, it's primarily in this area. The church ought to be presented to God, especially when she comes to the Lord's table, as a body that is cleansed and washed by her Lord. If somebody refused the white robes that Christ gives and instead stubbornly continues in sin, he will be condemned by the Lord. Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In this we also represent Christ to the world. If the church is marked by the same malice and evil as the world is, then the church is basically useless to the mission of God in declaring the freedom that God has given in Jesus Christ. Often in the book of 1 Corinthians, we have warnings about how the church appears to the Gentiles, and this is one of them. The church ought to represent the holiness of God. But we do this not on the basis of ourselves, but on the basis of Christ, our Passover lamb. We clear out the old leaven of malice and evil because we already are an unleavened loaf. Because Christ on the cross has removed the old leaven, the old man of our sinful flesh. We come to God this morning knowing that God continues to form us into a single loaf through the work of His Holy Spirit. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and sing from Psalm 48, which speaks about the beauty of, of Jerusalem. It's also supposed to be a picture of the people of God who are part of the temple of God. So, Psalm 48. Let's sing all the verses.